Please open up the Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew to the end of the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke chapter 24. And that's page 738 in that pew Bible if you're using it. As you're getting there, I want to remind you of something that I hope you didn't forget. And that is a week ago, something incredible and life-changing happened. Something we never anticipated, even though it was long promise, came true. Someone we thought we'd put down rose back up. Someone we gave up on met us on the road of our doubts and our fears and revealed he will never give up on us. Beloved, I don't know if you realize this, but a week ago on Easter Sunday, a new day began to dawn as we celebrated, do you remember, the greatest comeback of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's not just any ordinary event. In fact, it's an, an event decidedly out of the ordinary. It's a happening, as I tried to share last week, that changes everything. What we base our faith on, what is at the center of our belief, the high point of our scriptures and of our worship, all of it shifts because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shifts from waiting to following, from hoping to believing and trusting. And as we come to the conclusion of Luke's gospel this morning, we're going to be reminded yet again, just as our faith does not end with Good Friday crucifixion, neither does it end with Easter Sunday resurrection. The story of encountering Christ goes on. The resurrected Jesus calls for us to rise up too. So I invite you, if you're in Luke chapter 24, we're going to start reading in verse 36. Let's hear the word of the Lord. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So, we have another post-resurrection appearance of Christ. If you were with us last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at one on the road to Emmaus, and this happens immediately after. Jesus, by now, has revealed himself to a handful of people, including those disciples on the road to Emmaus, including Peter, and word is starting to get around that this Jewish rabbi, who was actively teaching and performing miracles one day, and then was unceremoniously rejected and executed the next, has now come back to life and is making the rounds among his followers. 
But once again, like last week, we see, even though the word is out on the street, when the actual word made flesh shows up before the disciples, they are still having a hard time taking all this in. Jesus seemingly appears out of nowhere as his disciples once again are talking about him. As he enters the room without any regard for the locked door, despite all they had heard, despite, remember, what some of them had seen for themselves, the disciples think they're seeing a ghost. Jesus immediately, I love this, acknowledges, he doesn't rebuke, he acknowledges the persistence of their doubt and their confusion before a new reality. It is Jesus but it is the resurrected Jesus. And I want to just stop here briefly because, again, I I think reading it, it's difficult for us to fully enter into exactly what the first disciples were experiencing. It is Jesus, but it is the resurrected Jesus. And what I mean by that is the disciples aren't just looking upon a resuscitated Jesus. The same old body, you know, just refurbished with the kiss of life. No, They are looking upon the risen Jesus, totally raised up, completely transformed, a new creation. If you will, to try to enter into this space, and again, as I'm saying, it's the same thing to me. It's hard for us to conceptualize this, but the best way I can frame it for you is the disciples before had looked upon the incarnation of our life, our life in its limitations, our life in death before it. But the disciples now are looking upon the incarnation of eternal life. A boundaryless life, a life not inhibited by the limitations of time. Hence, Jesus can be on the road to Emmaus and then all of a sudden be in the room with the disciples. A life un- unrestricted by space. Hence, a locked door means nothing. Again, if this is kind of blowing your mind, or you're trying to struggle, what, what is this like? You're not alone. The original disciples were confounded. We would have been too. We are still confounded because we still struggle to fully comprehend what just happened last Sunday. Who keeps walking through the locked doors of our lives? We are still struggling to comprehend, as I tried to unpack last week, the boundless power, the unlimited potential of eternity the Lord extends to us through Jesus Christ. In fact, it confounds us so much, as I've said before, we just sort of, we sort of pack it away until we die, until later. But Jesus presents it to us now. And Jesus here in the midst of the disciples, just totally freaked out, he, as he always does, meets us where we are. And Jesus engages the senses of the disciples in order to help them understand what he is not, a ghost, as well as to begin to grasp what he is eternity incarnate. First, as you read, he shows them his hands and his feet, complete with the scars from his death, and he invites them to touch him. Second, he asks for food, broiled fish, and eats it in their presence. It is Jesus. It is flesh and blood. It is no ghost, but it is Jesus. It is a person unlike any they've seen before, and yet the disciples have heard, they have seen, they've looked at, they've touched. He's appeared and even though they can't fully get their minds around it, it's true. It's real. The disciples heard, saw, looked at, and touched eternity. And then it's after this that Jesus, as we read, opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Just like he did on the road to Emmaus, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures and explains to them how all of the scriptures point to this, point to him, point to to what has happened and what will happen. 
And then Jesus directs his followers to be ready to go. But in being ready to go, to wait to be empowered. And then as our passage ends, as Luke's gospel ends, Jesus blesses them. And he blesses them. And as he blesses them, he's lifted into the sky. Jesus ascends into heaven. And that's part of our creed, part of our confession of faith. Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, I don't know if you noticed it right away. It's kind of interesting to me. But Luke's gospel... Luke's gospel ends similarly to how we started it with one significant difference. And in case you don't remember, and we didn't start this series looking at the beginning of the gospel of Luke, we normally don't look at it till around Advent, Christmas time. Let me remind you. Luke's gospel begins with Zechariah. Do you remember Zechariah? Zechariah was a priest serving in the temple on the Day of Atonement. Now, if you don't remember this, on the Day of Atonement, a priest would be chosen to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the Holy of Holies was the innermost place that was restricted where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. No one went in there except on the Day of Atonement and only one priest was selected to go in. And as a priest, it was a once in a lifetime thing. You didn't go in, if you got picked, if you got selected, it was once in your life and that was it. Zachariah, at the start of Luke's gospel, is that priest. He is called on the Day of Atonement to go in to the Holy of Holies to encounter the presence of God and the purpose of this was then to come out and to bless the people. Now, if you're starting to remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, that's the setup. But you remember when Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies, he's visited by an angel, and this angel gives him news of the birth of his son, John the Baptist, which is kind of strikes Zechariah as funny because his wife has been barren for years, and he and she are not all that young anymore. But the news of his son leaves him speechless. And Luke's gospel starts with Zechariah unable to bless the people. Luke's gospel starts with no blessing from a muted priest. And then here at the end, notice what we see. Jesus, after making atonement, as our high priest, entering into what the Holy of Holies represented, ascending, exalted into the presence of God, and as he does so, what does he do? He pronounces blessing on the disciples, on all of his followers. And the fear and apprehension of the disciples turns to joy and praise. They move from being in hiding to, as Luke describes it, openly and continually worshiping God in the temple. And I underscore all this. We look at this passage this morning because, beloved, just like the disciples worshiped together and blessed God in the temple, we gather together today for the same reason. Because of the death of resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Just like the first disciples, we become distracted. We may be doubtful, even confused as events in our lives unfold around us. So much so that like them, we can forget. We can fail to recognize Jesus even when he is right in front of us. We can be tempted too, caught up in all of our stuff, all of the distractions of this life. We can be tempted to make Jesus into a ghost some figure of the past, a memory, rather than to understand he lives before us, with us, in us, through us. And that's the reason why I really want to hit hard this first insight this morning. This is what I want you to take home, first of all. When we gather to worship, why we gather to worship is to remember, to reflect, and to have our lives reoriented around the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Everything about this space, everything about what we do in this time is about that. 
having us encounter the risen Jesus, becoming reoriented, our lives reoriented to its center, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And that's why I'm gonna take you through some things. Most houses of worship like ours have a cross, a large cross in the front or in the center of the worship space. The cross is there to remind us, to reorient us, to remember the cost of our sin and the burden of our death embraced by Christ. Immediately under the cross is a table, upon which we place and share bread and wine. Through this table and the elements on it, the suffering and grace of the cross become tangible as we repeat both the actions and the words of Jesus, offering his life for us and promising us redemption. The cross is empty because Jesus is not there, because Jesus is risen. We return to this table. We break the bread and share the cup again and again and again because Christ is with us, feeding us, leading us, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and making us whole. Everything we do when we gather together for worship revolves around the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Think about many of our regular worship practices. The various parts of our worship show up in today's passage. Or maybe the better way to say it is that today's passage and passages like it inform us how to worship. Like the disciples, as I said before, we come into God's presence disturbed by worries and fears. You walk in that door and you bring your life with you. You may be distracted. You may be disturbed. You may even be confused by all that's happening around you. But when you enter into this place, as worship begins, Jesus, just as he does here, greets us with a word of peace. Peace be with you. In a world that is lacking peace, to a people who are angrily sometimes in denial or fearfully plagued by the guilt and shame of their sin, Jesus brings us peace. In the Old Testament, peace was often associated with the presence of God. Because you see, the peace of God and the presence of God in the Bible are inseparable. To have the peace of God is to have the presence of God. And Jesus, right at the start, assures us God is with us because he is with us. Jesus offers us forgiveness, healing, and hope. And therefore, we can be at peace. At peace with God, at peace with ourselves, and at peace with each other. And we claim this peace. I don't know if you realize this. We claim this peace. We celebrate it. We declare it to each other right from the start of our worship together every week. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when I tell you in that quick moment, take a moment to share the peace and love of Jesus Christ with someone you know or someone you don't, that is not the part in the service when we go, hey, good morning, how you doing, what's up? You can do all those things, but the purpose for that, that time in our service is to remember we begin worship we can worship. We can come before God. We can come together because we have peace. And that's why next time you're given that invitation in worship, don't just look past that opportunity because when you look each other in the eye, when we extend an outstretched hand or an embracing hug, what we are doing is, is extending the peace of Christ to each other. We are saying to each other, you are welcome here. You are not a stranger. You are not alone. Christ is with you and with me. The peace of Jesus, this invitation of love, this promise of grace, in fact, brackets all that we do during our time together. It, it, it blankets the songs, the prayers, the sacrament. It's all possible. It's all bracketed by this peace 
that God offers us in Christ. It's because, in fact, of this peace that we can truly hear and receive the word of God. Notice, it's after the the disciples received the peace of Christ that Luke tells us he then opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He can't go there when they're startled and frightened. He can't go there when they're freaking out. But once they have received his peace, then he opens their minds to the scriptures. And every time we worship, you know this, we have a sermon like we do right now or a message. We take time to read these scriptures and to listen to a sermon. And that sermon is not just Pastor Chris's you know, helpful thoughts. It's not. This, what's happening right now, and trust me, it, it, it humbles me and it freaks me out every time. I can speak in other contexts, but this is different because when we gather around the word of God, we are trusting, we are believing the spirit of Christ speaks through me. And I do not say that arrogantly. Trust me, I say that with great trepidation. The spirit of Christ speaks through me and at the same time, the spirit of Christ is speaking to you. And our minds and our hearts are being opened to perceive how the word of God speaks into our lives. And in that experience, maybe you've had these different outcomes. Sometimes it's as if we're hearing the Bible for the first time when we gather together like this. Sometimes the scriptures are are heard in a familiar, a reassuring and comforting way. And then other times the word of God unsettles us, right? Me too, to the point of conviction and change. But on all occasions, regardless of how we experience it, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the letters, every page, every word reveals Jesus. We see Christ at work for us, Christ at work among us, Christ at work in and through us. And, and related to this, we've reached a place, and I teach preaching, I don't know how many of you know this, and, and one of the big things right now is everybody wants the sermon to be about application. Everybody wants application. Yeah, 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 all that background stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what am I supposed to do? How does this relate to my life? How does this, give me the, the five easy steps, the three things I'm supposed to do. What do I do? And I'm gonna tell you something. There is application in the word of God. But the sermon, the word of God, what we do here is not always about application, what or how to do. More often, the word of God does not seek to explain everything so much as to move us, to reorient us, to center our hearts and minds and souls towards Christ. That's the, the, the application that happens every time. It's not this assumption of, you're great, here's things to make you greater. The assumption is, you've fallen off kilter. You've gotten off center. You're treading towards the ways of death, and you need to be brought back to the ways of life. You've lost sight of Jesus. And the sermon, first and foremost, is not about steps. It's about getting you back to the heart, the mind, the character of God. Truly encountering The risen Christ, experiencing the peace of Christ, understanding the word of God leads to confession and praise. It does for the disciples here. They they turn to joy and praising. Jesus even tells them as he shares, I've opened up the scriptures to you. He says, he says that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in my name to all nations. And that is why every time we gather for worship in some form or another, we confess And confession isn't a laundry list of all we've done wrong, all of our weaknesses. Confession is our acknowledgement together of our dependence and our reliance upon God. To put it another way, confession and praise aren't mutually exclusive. And oftentimes we, we can do that, right? Well, we're praising God now. Yay, it's happy, it's good, it's fun. And now we're confessing.
But confession and praise aren't mutually exclusive. Because after all, the reason we confess, that we can confess, that we can come clean without hesitation or fear is because thanks to Jesus, we have forgiveness of our sins. When we confess, we are praising God for his forgiveness. When we confess, we are proclaiming the love of God expressed through Christ, recognizing together that Jesus still carries the wounds, our wounds, from the cross. Confession expresses our awareness of our reconciliation to God and to each other. If you will, confession is a practical way of extending and sharing the peace of Christ with each other. We can offer each other the peace of Christ, but when we literally confess together and receive that assurance of forgiveness, we are experiencing the peace of Christ together. Rather than pointing fingers at each other, rather than comparing ourselves with each other, we stand together. We bear each other's burdens as we confess, and together we mutually put ourselves in the Lord's hands. And that image of putting ourselves into the Lord's hands is a great visual for thinking about what comes next, repentance. Repentance means coming to Christ, no longer leading, no longer directing or worshiping yourself, but looking to, following and worshiping Jesus. And repentance is a decision of the will. But we enact that decision together. I can't get inside your head. I don't know what's going on with your will. I can't, that's the, you, I, I, I don't, you can tell me, but I can't get inside your head. But we enact that, that work of repentance, that decision, we practice by walking in a new direction towards Jesus by coming to the table, his table, his table. Once again, our encounter with the body of Christ comes full circle. We stand, right? We wait. We open our hands. We submit to one another. We hear. We look. We touch. We receive Jesus together. And we leave, but we don't go back to where we were. We don't go back to who we were. For we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives through us. Once again, we become the body of Christ. That's what this is all about. That's why we come together, to remember who we are, to be reoriented to who we are, the body of Christ. And in case we doubt this, in case somehow along this whole time we share together, you miss it or I miss it, our time in worship always ends with a benediction. A blessing and a commission, just like it does here. Jesus, did you notice this? He leads his disciples out of the room where they were meeting towards the vicinity of Bethany, which means the surrounding neighborhood. And it's there that he blesses them and sends them to be witnesses. We end our worship every week the very same way. In the name of Jesus, I offer, we share the blessing of the Lord. We commit together to witness to the kingdom, to be the body of Christ. Beloved, are you hearing me? Do you get this? What I'm saying to you, the second thing I really want you to hear is that in a world that is looking for a close encounter with Jesus, you and I, we're it. We are the body of Christ. The resurrected Jesus, the Messiah, continues to send us out to act in his name. He empowers us with his spirit, intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father to extend peace, to declare forgiveness of sins, to encourage, not to scold, not to rebuke, to encourage repentance, and to bless others with the love, grace, and truth of the kingdom. Jesus says it. We are to become witnesses, 
part of the risen body of Christ for all the world to see and experience. And that word, is a, it's an essential word to our faith, witness. But it's a word that many of us don't understand, and it's a word that many of us back away from. Being a witness is simply telling others where we sense God at work, whether it is in our lives or in our world or both. And the thing is, we bear witness all the time. We're just not used to thinking about it in terms of our faith. We bear witness to the things that are important to us all the time. We bear witness to the experiences we've had that we want others to enjoy, right? We bear witness to the accomplishments or failures of our sports teams. We bear witness to the important events in our families and our lives. That's what all of you do on Facebook. And sometimes you bear more witness than you should. But that's the place where you want everyone to know what you've done, what you're celebrating, what was awesome, what was great. You're bearing witness all the time. We bear witness when we tell someone, anyone, about the things that matter to us. And we do this all the time. So here's the thing. Why is it then that our lives and our faith communities are frequently characterized by lukewarm worship and such reluctant witness? Why are we more excited about a new movie or expressive about a sports highlight than we are about the glory of God? We worship, and some of us raise our hands. Some of us might even move a little bit. Some of us might actually raise our voices beyond a whisper. And if I would actually stop and say, hey, guys, come on. Let's really get into this. Let's be honest. Many of you would be offended. Many of you would feel very put out. Some of you wouldn't come back. But if I were to follow you home and watch you watch the sports game that's on TV or go to the concert for the band that you love, or show up to see your kids in their next play or whatever. When the appropriate moment comes, when people start going, woo, start clapping, you're not gonna go, oh, that really wouldn't be appropriate right now. I'm just really an introverted person. I'm just not very expressive. I don't do that. You would be hooting and hollering. You would be up giving witness, this is awesome. I am so proud of this. This is the best thing ever. My friends, we bear witness all the time to the things that we think are important. Why is it that we are more expressive about a new movie or expressive about a sports highlight than we are about the glory of God? Why are we so afraid of hurting other people's feelings, terrified we might say something wrong when it comes to talking and sharing about Jesus, and yet most of us will throw up and repost any old political nonsense on social media? And by the way, some of you guys need to stop posting political stuff on social media. <laughs> Seriously, you're like, oh, I'm going to say it. I don't care if anybody likes it. Bring it on. Bring on your dislikes and your comments. <laughs> yeah, you want to go? Let's go. But talk about, share about Jesus? Oh, oh, I don't, I, I, that might upset someone. <laughs> they might really be offended. Why have we reduced loving Jesus Loving like Jesus, why have we reduced that to simply being nice? Why have we settled for just quietly hoping someone notices that we go to church rather than inviting people to worship and serve with us? There's an answer, but it's not an answer that we're going to like. And it's not an answer that we're going to be comfortable with. And it's not an answer that, we, frankly, we may even agree with. But it's the answer that's right here in this passage. And it's not alone. It's the answer throughout Scripture. The answer is to why is because we haven't encountered the risen Christ. 
Because we haven't experienced the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit. Because we haven't allowed our minds to be opened by the word of God. Now, we may bristle at this, but again, I'm going to ask you, my friends, when you eat at an amazing restaurant or see an incredible movie, what do you immediately want to do? You want to tell everybody about it. you got to go here. you got to see this. And in fact, you'll follow up. Did you go? Did you try it? Wasn't it awesome? Wasn't it amazing? I don't have to follow you around. I don't have to tell you to do that. I don't have to force you or train you. Okay, here are the three steps to sharing your favorite restaurant with your friends. Here's how you let someone know this is a movie they really ought to see. I don't have to force you or train you. No one does. It just comes naturally. You can't help it. You won't stop talking about it. Sometimes you'll talk about it so much, someone will go, yeah, I get it, okay? Yeah, right, okay. It's the same thing when it comes to Jesus. My friends, when you encounter the living Christ, I mean, when you encounter the living Christ, when Jesus speaks to you from his word, when Jesus fills you with the power of his resurrection, you won't hesitate to talk about it to share it, to show it. Jesus will just ooze out of you. You can't help it. You'll be drawn into, and and with magnetism, you will draw others into the body of Christ. So if we're sitting here and we're saying, why? It's because we haven't experienced. We haven't encountered the risen Christ. We haven't experienced the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit. We haven't had our minds open to the scriptures. Again, one of the more amazing miracles recorded in the Bible for me is, is frequently not viewed as a miracle, but to me it is. And what I'm talking about is, do you notice how the disciples of Jesus change almost overnight? Do you get what I'm talking about? Do you remember more than a week ago? I'm talking before Easter Sunday. Let's go back Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Heck, the first three years, do you remember what these guys were like? They were a depressed doubting and cowardly crew. Heck, it didn't even take till Friday. They were done on Thursday. They were done when Jesus gets arrested in the garden. Most of them, do you remember this, didn't even have the gumption to visit his tomb until after they heard it was empty. And when they heard he had risen, he had risen, right? They considered it utter nonsense. Oh, you guys are crazy. When Jesus shows up right in front of them, They're convinced it's a ghost. They're going to call Ghostbusters. But a close encounter with the risen Jesus profoundly changes them. And I don't think this is a stretch. I'm not piling on. I think this is fair. These clueless, fearful, and self-consumed men become worshipers. They get so caught up in the glory and goodness of God that Luke tells us, and you could miss it, his last line, they go back to Jerusalem and remain continually in the temple praising the Lord. Do you remember where they were? They were locked behind a closed door going, is it okay to come out now? And they go back to the very city where Jesus was crucified into the very temple that Jesus said was going to be destroyed, and they are continually praising the Lord. And the beautiful thing is, that's not even the end of the transformation. Because we come to the end of Luke's gospel, but you know the story isn't over. It's only just beginning. Because the book of Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. It's volume two of the same story. And what is amazing is the men that we leave at the end of this gospel are still continuing to be transformed as we come to the first pages of the book of Acts. Clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, these disciples do not remain stationary in Jerusalem just worshiping in the temple. 
No, their worship of Jesus drives their witness for Christ. Having encountered the risen Christ, having had their minds opened to understand the scriptures, having responded through worshipful confession, repentance, and blessing, these disciples seek eagerly to impart the same gifts to others. They become the body of Christ, bearing witness to Christ's living presence. The Lord's physical hands and feet are no longer present for others to see, to touch, so they become the hands and feet of Jesus for others to see and by which others can be touched. Having experienced and received the peace of God through Jesus, they spread the peace of Christ, proclaiming forgiveness and encouraging repentance. And this isn't just then. This is now. Jesus doesn't just say, you are witnesses. He says, we are witnesses. And this statement that we are witnesses is not so much a command telling us what to do as it is a statement about who we are. Because as I've said already, the truth is whether we are a good or bad witness, we all, every single one of us, inevitably point to something or someone as the center, as the truth of our lives. All of us. Our worship defines our witness. Whatever we seek to bring glory to, whatever we want to lift up, whatever we want to accentuate, is what we will tell others about, is what we will seek to share with the people we love. And so we come back to that question, what are we worshiping? What are we lifting up? What are we accentuating above everything else? What is our witness? My friends, have you encountered the risen Jesus? Have you experienced the power of the resurrection? Have you allowed your minds to be opened by the scriptures? And I'm like, I know what you're thinking. Well, what, what am I doing here then? You can be in the periphery. You can hang out in the community. You can have a Bible, but that doesn't mean you've had a relationship or are having one. It doesn't mean you're having an experience. Let's just take this idea of our minds being open to the scriptures. Like I said, you can read your Bible, and I hope you do. I hope you are. You can know your Bible, and I look around this room, and many of you know your Bibles well. You know it chapter and verse. But reading your Bible, knowing your Bible, both important, are still not the same thing as allowing yourself to be opened by the Scriptures. When Jesus opens a disciple's mind to understand the Scriptures, it's not to add to their base of knowledge. It is to bridge the chasm between their minds and their hearts, between their knowledge and their wills. I look around this room and I see brilliant people. Many of us have all kinds of knowledge, intellectual and experiential knowledge. The brain power in here is amazing. But what's connecting all that life experience, all that scriptural knowledge, intellectual knowledge to your will? We must not read or study the scriptures and forsake or ignore the same spirit who authored them. My friends, another way to think of this, when we depend solely on our knowledge, we make a golden calf of our learning. One of the great dangers then and now in the church has been making our understanding of God our God. Has been making our understanding of God our God rather than again and again and again encountering Jesus anew through the scriptures. I love school. I love scholarship. You know this. But scholarship alone will not cause the gospel to take root. 
What does the Bible say does? New creations in Christ sow the seeds of the gospel. Changed hearts and lives, kingdom righteousness, peace and joy on display, applied biblical knowledge, actually living out the resurrection life presents the risen body of Christ before the world to hear, to see, to touch, to experience. Notice what I keep saying. It's all about the body of Christ, not the arm, not the leg, not the torso. And I underscore this because this is part of our problem. This is part of our disconnect. We have always been, but we are continuing to live more and more in an individualistic society. I cannot tell you, and on one hand, I'm going to come back to this. I know the world is changing. How many people tell me they don't need the church anymore? They don't need to be a part of the church. They can worship Jesus on their own. Look at the pews. They're not as full as they were last week. And there are lots of people who aren't even here and it's happening every week anymore. Every so often if you make it, but otherwise you can worship God on your own. This is the thing that we tell ourselves. We can worship God on our own. And I'm here to tell you, and I know I've said it before, but I'm gonna keep saying it until someone hears me. It's not true. It's the, it's the biggest obstacle in front of us because here's the thing. <laughs> we may live in an individualistic society. We may pride ourselves in our individualism, but the picture of salvation the Bible gives us every single time, every single time, underscore it, underline it, look it up, every single time is not an individualistic one. Jesus had 12 disciples, not just one. My friends, what I'm saying to you is you can't experience the body of Christ if you aren't part of the body of Christ. And don't hear this as some pitch to come into this building at 10.30 or 8.30 or to go to some other church. The world around us is changing, and I get it, and I'm afraid of it, but at the same time, I know God's in charge. This is not some argument about doing church or being the church the way that we were before, meaning having to have a building, a room, and a time. My, but here's the thing I'm pushing up against. The people I encounter who aren't doing church anymore, the people who I encounter who say they can worship God on their own, here's what's lacking. You can worship as a family. You can invite people into your house. You can be the church outside of the walls of this space and this time. Absolutely. But being the church means having Jesus at the center. And when I ask people, well, what do you do when you're not, you know, you're worshiping God on your own rather than being a part of the church? Are you sharing the peace of Christ with each other openly? Are you confessing your sins together and acknowledging your repentance? Are you opening up the scriptures and reading them together? Are you going to the table? I have yet to have anybody who's told me that that's what they do. You know what they tell me? I just have Jesus with me. He just comes along on my day. Jesus doesn't belong in your backpack or your pocketbook. Jesus belongs at the center. And we come together, and part of why this works, that it can change, is because this is it. You have to submit yourself to a time. You submit yourself to a place. You submit yourself around people you may not have even invited or wanted to be with. To songs you wouldn't have sung. To a sermon you wouldn't have necessarily wanted to hear. To communion, not necessarily the way you would have done it. You submit, and in submitting, we submitting to ourselves, to each other, we submit together before Christ. And we suddenly realize, in the span of time we're together, the world doesn't revolve around us. Can I suggest that the reason why we don't experience the risen Christ, the reason why we haven't encountered the power of the resurrection of the Holy Spirit, and why our minds are not being open to the scriptures is because we don't want to submit. And, there, and this isn't an all or nothing thing. We can have moments in our lives, but it's a constant reminder of following Jesus is submitting to Jesus. And when we submit, we encounter the risen Christ. If we go back and go, it's a ghost, not gonna happen. 
When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, the power of the resurrection, we go, you know what? I prefer to operate under my own power. Okay. When you go, you know what? I know this Bible. I know what this says. I don't need anybody else to tell me. Okay. But you're going to be stuck. Changed hearts and lives, kingdom righteousness, peace and joy on display, that, living out the resurrection life, that's how we become the risen body of Christ. Together. We're not saved alone. We cannot be the body of Christ alone. Jesus is revealed. He's worshiped and witnessed in community. Jesus is revealed, if you haven't seen him, when we serve each other and we, when we are in service together to others. That's how we're made new into the body of Christ. That's how we become this beloved community. When we submit to each other and together submit before Christ, we become this beloved community that is able, empowered to heal people emotionally, that helps them to cope with disappointments and defeats, a community that calls ourselves first accountable for the way we treat each other and then everyone else, a community that together sets a standard for humility and hope that we evidence first and then put on display for the world. My friends, what I'm saying to you this morning is resurrection is the pivotal moment of the gospel. But in case you missed it, in case you forget, there's another act to follow. Easter doesn't exhaust the biblical narrative of God's saving work. The story of encountering Christ goes on. We're ending this sermon series today, but the story of encountering Christ goes on because the resurrected Jesus calls for us to rise up. I have an author I like named Clarence Jordan, and he talks about the resurrection like this, and it inspires me. He writes, the resurrection is God's refusal to stay on the other side of the grave. God raised Jesus, he writes, not as an invitation to us to come to heaven when we die, but as a declaration that he himself has not established permanent residence on earth. The resurrection places Jesus on this side of the grave, here and now, in the midst of this life. The good news of the resurrection, hear this, is not that we shall die and go home with him, but that he is risen and comes home with us. Bringing all his hungry, naked, thirsty, sick, prisoner brothers and sisters with him. My friends, Jesus is alive today in the real world. Have you seen him? Have you encountered him? Are you reflecting him? Because Jesus doesn't teach us to escape the real world because it's bad. Jesus teaches us, he calls us to engage the real world, to be in it but not of it. You read this passage, and if you're reading the same scripture as I am, Jesus isn't preparing babysitters. Jesus is preparing witnesses. And following Jesus, being a witness, means we reflect the work that God has done in our lives, how Christ has brought us to belief, how Christ brings us to understanding, and how, how Christ drives us to action. Through Jesus at work in us, we reflect how to live differently, how to live full lives, wholehearted lives, complete lives, when God is in charge of our lives. Resurrection is an act of God whereby we are changed, where we are translated into the closer presence and love of God. And what that means is our worship and our witness for Christ always, always involves, invites, and includes others. The most convincing proof of the resurrection is our daily testimony that Christ still lives and the work of his kingdom continues. <laughs> 
I'm going to pass out here because I'm dying of heat and I'm exhausted right now. I, I can preach for another 20 minutes. I could preach for another four hours. I'm one person. This is not about me. This is about us. We can, we can fill our time for the next couple of weeks till we get to Christmas again and then count the days till Easter or we can hear this. The close encounters, the close encounters that many, you have people in your life like I do, don't you? The close encounters that many, many people seek and need with Jesus today. They come by way of his body. The body of Christ risen on the move. And my friends, that body of Christ risen and on the move is us. It's you and me. Amen.